You're listening to Pangea, a podcast about global ideas. I'm Jacqueline Schiff. Here's a question for you. What do you get when you mix Anthony Bourdain, Indiana Jones, and a ferocious love of coffee? It's this guy. Uh, my name is Todd Carmichael, and I am the president and CEO of a coffee company called La Colombe. And I am the host of a television series on Travel Channel named Dangerous Grounds. Carmichael sources his coffee all on his own, and his expeditions to Africa, Asia, and Latin America are the subject of the show, Dangerous Grounds. To source the finest beans for his clients, Carmichael often travels to politically unstable and conflict-ridden areas. In the first season of the show, audience members watched as he tackled obstacles from Papua New Guinea to Haiti to Ethiopia in pursuit of the perfect coffee bean. With the second season scheduled to begin next week, I caught up with Carmichael, who was in town for the recent Chicago travel and adventure show. So let's start there with Dangerous Grounds. Um, You've got one season under your belt um, and the new season starting at the end of this month. And, you know, you've been on TV shows before, but as I understand, this is sort of the first series you've been involved with. Oh, yeah. What's that experience been like? Oh, my goodness. It is like being shot into outer space. I mean, the first thing is the G's, I mean, for the first season... You know, the G's are pretty intense. The, uh, I don't think that the average person realizes how much work it really is mm. to, uh, to be involved in a television uh, series. I mean, even if it's just someone following you along in, in your daily job. Um, and, uh, but at the same time, extraordinarily, I mean, it's, it's just been such a beautiful experience, a learning experience. Second season, after a while, you, you, you get used to it, which is very difficult, believe it or not, just to speak naturally in front of a camera. Hmm. And particularly when things are dicey or when you're driving or when, you can, right. or when you're worried that everything is going to go wrong. And just, just being yourself, believe it or not, on camera is very hard. And how, how would you say that's sort of evolved from season one to season two? Just the skill of being yourself? Yeah, I think that the skill set requires eventually you just let go. Mm-hmm. And you stop. You really stop trying to either edit yourself or audit yourself, and you just open the throttle and enjoy the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and what what occurred to me as I went along in the series is that I I began I began really thinking of everything as I'm bringing people along mm-hmm. rather than I'm performing for a camera. And it's just so now when I turn and I'm speaking to the camera, I'm trying to explain to something. And I envision that it's just my friends and my families and you know the people that I've met over over the years. I'm just trying to for them to, to appreciate what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And once you get to that place, it gets a lot easier. Well, let, let me ask you more about that. So in the series, you go to some very offbeat places. A lot mm-hmm. of times they're dangerous. And what um, are you thinking a lot about what you want viewers to get out of each episode? Um, and you know, to what extent do you have a say in that? Well, I mean, I have a lot. I have a you know, one hundred percent say what countries we go to and what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. I mean, all these coffees that we're that I'm looking for, I'm buying them, mm-hmm. and they're for my company. 
the I find that the uh, the best thing to do is not try to think of the story. I, I'm not an editor. I'm not a professional. I I'm not a, even a speaker. I don't do those things well. I I've never been in an editing bay more than five minutes. Just to, they're showing me something, mm-hmm. and if I'm trying to do that job and my job, it just seizes me up. Um, you know how it works. I mean, Hollywood and I. Hollywood is my camera the guy. Camera, yeah. We're out there for a while, mm-hmm. and we shoot. I don't know several hundred hours of stuff, mm-hmm. and all I do is just go as fast as I can, as far as I can, and I try to experience as much as I can, and I let everyone else kind of worry about the story that's built after. The thing I'm the thing I'm mostly worried about is finding the coffee. I don't like to fail. And failing in front of I don't know how many million viewers is just not fun. It happened once and it it tends to get me a little bit nervous. That's primarily what I'm focused on. It's just making sure that I don't fail in front of America. When you say it happened once, are you yeah. referring to something in season one? Or yeah, season one up? in Cambodia. Yeah, I got completely blanked. We spent two and a half weeks out there. I, I drove my cameraman into the ground. I mean, I literally remember him laying on the ground and I'm putting water into his mouth. And the coffee that I thought was there because of shipping documents just was not there. So it was a long, slow ride home. Um, and so in season two, I didn't want that to happen again. Mm-hmm. So when we go to Mexico, particularly if you're doing it for a, sh- a chef like Jean-Georges, I've got a lot of people that make happy. And I'm not thinking about any editors and any that I've got too many people already to make happy. Mm-hmm. I can't come home to my wife and children and tell them that, well, I just spent a load of money and we didn't get anything. Uh, my business partner's expecting it. And then the chef that's expecting it, that I realized that, You know, as we're going along, I can tell by the look in his eye, you know, when something horrific goes wrong, (laughs) that he's happy, um, and that it just become a new challenge for me. Mm -hmm. So in addition to the coffee business, Mm -hmm. um, you're involved in a lot of humanitarian uh, work associated with, you know, you have a... A uh, blend of coffee um, whose proceeds, I believe, go to the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation. That's correct, yeah, Leon. Mm-hmm. When you started with your career, um, did you sort of want to take it on the social entrepreneurship track? Um, I don't know if you identify as a social entrepreneur, yeah. but if you could speak to that. Um, when I very first started, I mean, I was 18 years old. And, you know, when I, I was 18, it was Seattle, so it was a bit of a well, like that I am now a flaming liberal. So I always thought in terms of, you know, trying to do something to better the planet around me. Mm-hmm. I was just broke. So it wasn't. Now, as I began really traveling and deep into countries that interest me, um, I began attached to people and villages and places. And, and, um, and it's not so much being a philanthropist, I think, as just mm-hmm. being, well, my neighborhood's really big now. Hmm. It it includes lots of countries and lots of villages and lots of places that are right. very intimate to me, that are familiar to me, like downtown Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, doing what I can, because I'm on this special place, this bridge between, you know, the United States and developing countries. It's just being a good neighbor and doing the right thing. That's it, mm-hmm. you know. And, uh, you know, it's it's impacted my life in a very profound way. I mean, it's and it's, it's something that... That rewards everybody, including myself. I like I like to be a part of that neighborhood, and I like being a good citizen in that neighborhood. Where does the the interest um, in developing countries come from? Was it fueled by the coffee, um, or you know, was there a pre existing interest in just going to offbeat places? 
Yeah, it's it's hard to separate. I bet you uh, it's probably a huge combination of even more things than that. They're all kind of snowballed together. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I'm a farm boy. And, uh, you know, a farm boy that lost his farm. And I went to Seattle. And ultimately, you know, I thought I was going to be a tax attorney. But instead, I just couldn't leave the farms. Now, these farms aren't in Spokane, Washington. They're in different places. But um, And just that involvement, it's just on the farm level. And I identify with farmers. I've, I've mm-hmm. grown up with them. I understand them. They understand me. And was one thing I can tell you about farmers is that you know, they help each other. Mm-hmm. You know, so that, that's really the interest. But I love my adrenaline rush. You know, I've done stupid things like walk across deserts and Antarctica and things like that because yeah. I like to challenge myself. I, figure, I find the best life is the one when you're just slightly nervous, when the one that you're a little bit afraid. That's when you're the most alert. You know, not completely out of your mind. People are shooting right. me in the face. But if you keep yourself on that edge, it's like you have spidey senses. And I like to keep myself there. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy it. Do you ever feel sometimes like the risk might be too much for a <laughs> cup of coffee? Yeah, it's totally way too much risk for a cup of coffee. <laughs> and I mean, especially cup of coffee, considering that you're, um, you know, a father of four adopted four, kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And have a wife. The, it's too much risk for a cup of coffee, but it's, it's not too much risk for all the people who are associated with me through huge tentacles. I'm a lifeline to most of these farmers. I am, I am that person who connects them to a greater world. And it's not me that's making sure that their children go, but I, I connect them like, like the Internet or like a new road or like mm-hmm. telephone lines. I'm that guy. You know, I bring the market to them. Okay. And I can change mountains in really profound ways. The, and I can provide for my four children and my wife. I can provide for my 350 employees now. And, and so for just a cup of coffee, nah, mm-mm. I'll go downstairs and brew myself one. Or, you know, but it's, it's not coffee. Mm-hmm. This is something way bigger than that, and it's even way bigger than me. Now, the risk I take, if it were just a greenhorn coming out, yeah, dude, it's bad. I mean, this season, I got arrested five times. I've been handcuffed with my Jeep. I've been zip-tied. I've been held. But I've been through these things for 32 years that there's just ways of navigating around and knowing mm-hmm. what, what will kill you and what won't. Um, if you're just somebody who had an interest in it, right now you went up into, let's say, Pasteur in Haiti, yeah, you're asking for it. But I can get in there and out, and it's, it's not the same kind of risk. Yeah. Well, l- let me ask you about Haiti because, uh, you know, we're sitting here, and tomorrow's the four-year anniversary mm-hmm. um, yeah. since the really, you know, tragic earthquake. And mm-hmm. you've done work there. You've worked mm-hmm. with Sean Penn. Um, from your vantage point, you know, where you know, where do you see Haiti going? How do you feel about where things are? You know, I th- Haiti is an extraordinarily complex place. Mm-hmm. The, uh, you know, the tragedy that, that was just another almost exclamation point on a series of tragedies that can go back since 1803. Um, some man-made, some not, some political, some, yeah. Um, Haiti is moving in the right direction. Is it done? No, it's, no, it's not done. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can't. It was a country that was already on its knees, and then it got shot in the back of the head. This is this is a patient that's going to require a lot of attention. Now, a lot of the NGOs are leaving. There's a lot of people in place. Um, the next question we have is saying, okay, we need to reconnect Haiti to the wider world in terms of its market. It's an agrarian society. They, an agrarian society grows things and they sell them 
That's how it works. That's how farming works. Mm -hmm. And they're just simply not finishing off that connection. The, uh, I know that myself, and now I'm working with the, the Clinton Foundation, and they've helped us raise huge amounts of money. We've created a coffee academy there. Now, that part of the mountain that you might have seen in an episode of Dangerous Grounds is, it, it is like, you know, it's the poster child now to what can happen there. I would like to see more of that happening. And it doesn't require writing a check. It doesn't necessarily require that. It requires lots of other things and patience and times and guys like me who are going to do stupid things just for a cup of coffee. So can you talk more about the Coffee Academy? Um, mm -hmm. How long has it been up and running and how many people yeah. are you teaching I wish there? I had all my photos. <laughs> this is like a photo. Um, the, the Coffee Academy is, is, uh, is an idea I had as a, as a hard-headed individual who said, okay, yeah. what we need to do is create this intersection. They needed a processing plant and drying facilities that was mature. They needed access primarily to fertilizers that were being black marketed and run across the border in the Dominican Republic. They needed access to mechanical means of farming. There's a huge difference between cutting down 20 or 30 or 40 hectares for the weeds with a machete mm -hmm. and one with a machine that's you know, to do that. There's also a lot of education on to, you know, mm -hmm. water, how to, how, to, how to cope with, how to collect, how to do it. So what I simply did is I put in all, these, all this, this factory and these, you know, the drying platform and all these machines, and the farmers, in order for them... To, uh, to borrow them, they just mm -hmm. had to sit down for a class. And if you wanted to borrow that one, you had to sit down for this class. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, it was to teach them how to actually package up and sell to the outside world. Over the space of a year, the gringos in Canada and America and around the world who are terrified of this part of the world, because I have now trucks down there, we truck them up, and they have a safe place to trade with the farmers at prices that are wow. well above, like fair trade prices and above. Right now, the prices they're getting up there are $4.50 a pound. This means health care, education. This means food. This means books. This means houses. This, I mean, it is. But they even took cement. Now, the main road of the city has got cement on it. It's got a paved road in this village. And you should have seen it the first time I got there. Yeah. It was right in the middle of the cholera crisis, and it was ugly. And it's just a simple idea from a hard-headed guy. I'm, I'm not Bill Gates. I can't write that kind of check. Um, I just went and I begged Bill Clinton, and he gave me like 175,000. I put in that much, and wow. then the Four Seasons Hotel, I begged them and put it all together, and we created something that's ultimately theirs because mm -hmm. we just pay the educators. And then I took 20 hectares of land that was abandoned, and uh, I, I don't own it. I don't think foreigners should come in and own it. And I paid for all the labor to bring it back to show you how you can take a farm back from jungle. To up, And then finally, I worked with some uh, agronomists in, in the southern part of Brazil, and we came up with a seed specially designed for Haiti. Hmm. We, we had the military actually involved in bringing it. This is really boring you, isn't it? No. Okay, okay. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> Why you do you say talk that? talking about coffee. The, uh, if if so it we was had this boring nursery. me, I'd interrupt or stop you. But. 575,000 brand beautiful nursery with these little seedlings uh -huh. that just went in. Yeah. And in three years, they'll be harvested. It's a plant that can handle a hurricane. But with a real problem in Haiti is that uh, the plants are giving so little fruit. They're so old. Mm. And so we're giving them this luscious, beautiful coffee that I know that when we cup it, I'm going to charge people ridiculous amounts to go up there and buy it from them. <laughs> so so, so that's, that's Haiti. And that's, it's one of my joys. Uh, and it's, you know, it's one of those things that, and again, I think that even Haiti, and we can, we can talk about Uganda, when mm -hmm. you see the Uganda, the, the work that we've been doing with the schools there, all my children, it's, 
That's why it's more than a cup of coffee. There's this huge universe that's around me of people, like mm -hmm. stars and planets. And it starts in this very simple, you know, really humble thing, this little brown fluid. And yeah, okay, like 99% of the coffee in the world tastes like coffee. But mm -hmm. for that 1%, yeah. for that 1%, it tastes like ridiculous, like ridiculous. I find your favorite food and I'll find it in coffee. Like, do you like blueberry Pop-Tarts? Um, sure. It's been okay. a while since I had about, one, but... Do you like acid flavors? Like, do you... You know those little candies, yeah. sour candies? What's those little things? Is this... Are you responding to the fact that I said before the interview that I'm not a coffee drinker? Yes, yeah. Oh, okay. I'm so still trying to give you... But I'm saying, with, I'm going to send you a coffee. It, it kind of explains yeah. that, you know, these... The drive of a lot of my clients to say, Todd, we're looking for something that absolutely is extraordinary, and it's like this. Uh -huh. It's like bergamot, yasmin, lemon juice. I know exactly where to go. It's just outside of north of Buquete in Panama. It's a variety called geisha. It's right. extraordinary. If it helps, I do like coffee-flavored things a lot of the time, which <laughs> know, is right? so <laughs> strange, but anyway. Can I just tell you something? Sure. The love of my life, my wife, mm -hmm. detests coffee. I can't get her to do it. I've tried everything. Wow. I've tried everything. It just, I just can't get it. I, I just can't crack that nut. That's so funny. Right? But is it... Do you feel like there's something there, the fact that you're sort of like constantly trying to get her, to find the coffee that she'll like? I know, or I go, this one. Maybe you like, like the chase of it or something. I think that might be it. And I, I think that it's the attraction. She's, this is a coffee too, by the way, the last one I just made her, right? And I brewed it in a way that won this championship yeah. thing and blah, blah, blah. The coffee sells for $250 a pound. It's $50 mm -hmm. a cup. You know what she did? Spewed it into the sink. Oh, sorry, am I talking too long? I'll uh, do that. We no. can that. No, that that was uh, an interesting. So, but she'll keep trying the coffee. Uh, yeah, and I'll never give up. Yeah, yeah, just keep trying. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess you know we're running out of time. But the oh, last yeah. question, um, yeah. I read something you wrote um, about uh, the, you know the contrast of going from these. Um, you know, places that serve, you know, some of the best coffee in the world to the mm. places where you get the coffee from. You know, what is it like to constantly be shifting between those two worlds? And, like, do yeah. you think there are any – do you feel like you have any, uh, you know, obligations um, that, that sort of come along with that? Uh, well, if that first part of the question is, and particularly early on, you know, when you're in a, you know, a dining environment that – like in the city, Linea, great restaurant, beautiful restaurant, great owners. I've been roasting their coffee for a long time. It is just so opulent and beautiful. And then four days later, mm -hmm. you're sleeping under a truck. There's, you know, there's not, no electricity within how many ever miles. And, right. and life is hard, you know, and you see both those things. I, I don't struggle with it because it, um, as much as I did when I was younger, I recognize it as an opportunity. And that's the best way to look at it. I think that if you don't look at it like that, then you do. You end up either avoiding one side, in other words, not accepting the fact that three-quarters of this planet lives below the poverty line. And it's a woman, she doesn't have a mate, she has three kids, and she doesn't know what she's going to eat tomorrow. And she is, you know, she's held down by the, the other males of her tribe or her population, and she has dark skin, and she'll probably live to be 42. That's the human condition, right? You can ignore that and live in your little bubble. Or you can look both of them squarely in the face and say, this, this is the human existence. And I've been given the rare opportunity to navigate between the two. So what am I going to do about it? I'm going to bring the best agriculture that these people have 
to Lania or to the Four Seasons, right? And I'm going to charge them an ugly amount of money in order to do that. Okay, don't put that down. Okay, strike that last little bit. The, and at the same time, I'm going to deliver that opportunity and those people back to them. You know, and I, I'm not putting myself into some glorious position like I'm freaking Robin or, I mean, we're not, yeah, Robin ben, Hood. Probably, yeah, probably uh, Robin, the small guy <laughs> with the tights. I can him. No, I'm not, I'm not a superhero. Yeah. I'm just a guy that, that has been put on this bridge. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, I'm going to run water over to this side and I'm going to run something back that way. Um, and again, I guess that speaks to some of the reasons why I do it. I'm 50 years old. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, that could be old. I mean, I broke the world record at what, 46. So, um, and I'm going to continue doing this until, you know, they're putting like a little blanket over me on a wheelchair mm-hmm. because it's more than just a business and it's more than just coffee. Right. It's more than just a, it's, it's the universe. It's the real world, you know? That's all for this episode of Pangea. Thank you for listening. And if you like what you're hearing, I hope you'll share it with someone else and let others know who might be interested in the show. I really appreciate your support. Thanks and have a great week.